Hello, and welcome to the CEO Blind Spot Show, where leaders lead leaders. I'm your host, Birgit Camps, and today's guest is Alan Smith, CEO of Rockcliffe Energy. Alan, you started and sold, along with your team, six successful companies, and now you're with Rockcliffe, which is another success. You also succeeded in sports on a tennis scholarship. You went and got your petroleum engineering degree, and you've also been honored as a member into the All-American Wildcatters organization. So how did you have all these successes and how is it possible that someone like you even has blind spots and you're in the oil and gas business and not everybody understands wildcatters. So I thought it would be fun if we could start with how did that come about? Welcome to the show and you take over now. Well, thanks, Birgit. It's a pleasure to be with you today and have a lot of respect for you and what you do and been a big help to me and to our team. When you think about oil and gas, sometimes you hear about wildcatters and the terms kind of evolved over time, but it really just means someone who is willing to go out and take risk, you know, to find oil and gas or to find hydrocarbons. And to do that, you have to figure out where exactly that you want to go about doing that. And then you've got to secure the capital because unfortunately the energy business is a capital intensive business. And over time it's evolved because we've gone from just truly wildcatting well by well to literally buying existing assets that have additional potential to explore. We have another term now we use called developcats, where they're not quite wildcats, but they're not just layup you know, wells either. And then we also just have to do the blocking and tackling execution. But it really just the risk to go out and start from scratch and find oil and gas. Which is unusual for someone with a petroleum engineering degree who, you know, in general, I'm told that profile tends to be risk averse. And yet you have figured out how to take appropriate risk to the point that currently you have $700 million that Quantum Energy Partners put into starting Rockcliffe because of your track history of being able to do that well. Quantum is about 60% of our capital, and then we have some institutional capital and endowment capital that's come alongside us also. And what is your explanation as to why they felt comfortable putting that in your hands, so to speak? Well, engineers are well qualified to assess risk. As I think about being an entrepreneur, then you have to figure out where and what assets would be something that you could potentially get your hands on and make more profitable. And I think that that is the the difference because there's a lot of guys that do fantastic work in the larger companies with a given budget. But when you have to go out and do the actual capital allocation, you're and decide how much risk can I take with these dollars. And yes, if I'm right, it's going to be a home run. But if I'm wrong, it's going to be a zero. The big thing that uh, I think the engineering discipline brings to the table is trying to eliminate those what I call binary outcomes and trying to capital allocate appropriately so that you give yourself the best chance to win. And win in our business, in a commodity business, is a lot of times singles, doubles, and the rare triple that happens. And if you hit a home run, it's either because you happen to catch a commodity price wave or you took quite a bit of risk. Yeah. And I have to say, sometimes when we talk about blind spots on the show, it's on the on the negative side, but there's also blind spots on the positive side. And from working with you and your team, I happen to know that a positive blind spot is the unusual competitive edge with how you differentiate yourself. So not only do you know how to put the dollars to use well, but you also are really gifted at differentiating yourself in the commodity business. Can you say something more about that? 
Sure. It's a great point that we are in a commodity business. And Peter Thiel loves to say in his book, Zero to One, whatever you do, don't get in it in an undifferentiated commodity business. So if we find ourselves in that position, which I've been in this position over 35 years, then you got to figure out how to differentiate yourself. And it really comes down to our people. Uh, the application of technology and how and where we build our relationships. And I think people picking is something that is really a gift. It takes a lot of time. It's something that you cannot delegate. Uh, when you think you found the right person on paper and potentially you've even interviewed them, the reference calls are beyond important. And you can't make the perfunctory calls where you kind of get the answers that you want. You ask a lot of yes, no questions. You have to dig and you have to dig deep as to this person's strengths. What are their development needs? You know, where have you seen them perform in a crisis or in a very unusual situation? or how have they handled themselves in conflict. So you're trying to not only figure out is the person talented enough to do what you need to be able to do, but are they able to work and play with others well? And you really need both. So the people side of it is one way we've, I think, clearly differentiate ourselves over time. And you know, then technically we have to, to differentiate ourselves, which goes right into the technology aspect uh, of what we do in our business is we have to have someone who understands a basin that has worked the basin for 20 plus years. We can't have someone who's just worked the basin for a few years because they're going to have a ton of blind spots, technically. And yes. that's that's how you get burned. Well, I think those are all very important points in how you evaluate someone. And it's interesting because you just mentioned another one that I think probably almost no one asked about until now, which is also making sure that you know how they've handled crisis because we're in so many of them right now. So thanks for sharing that. And all people see when they see you and when they do, you know, Google searches on you is all your successes. So can you share anything about any blind spots you discovered about yourself? Well, we all prone to them. I can often, certainly not intentional, but not communicate as often and as thoroughly as I should as to the ongoing strategic initiatives, the ongoing execution initiatives, and just sort of expecting that things will continue to go you know, up and to the right. And while I'm blessed to be partners with some fantastic people in my organization. I've discovered that regular communication is very important. And even though I may think I understand what's going on, therefore, I don't need to dig deeper. There's always more that they want to share with me. There's more that they want to discuss with me. There's more that they want to clarify with me. And, you know, and, and we're working remotely right now. So that's even something we've had to be more focused on, more, you know, deliberate about making sure that we put those times on our calendars because we used to do a lot of catching up when you would walk by someone's office or you'd bump into someone or you would uh, have the conversation, you know, just after a meeting or something like that. And so now, you know, we're having to take the time to put those catch ups on the calendar and, you know, be able to, you know, have those conversations and, and it bears a lot of fruit. And I think that the overall organization performs better when there's that much more clarity, especially you know, times like these. Yeah. So you've been leading for several decades and, and very successfully. What has surprised you the most about leading people? That's a good question. Very good. You know, I think that people, a lot of times they want to be, you know, a part of something entrepreneurial, but the commitment level that it takes at all levels, not just the senior levels, to be successful is hard to put into words. 
trying to take everything to the next level, you know, trying to always strive to reduce the cost, always striving how to extract a better, you know, recovery factor. And, you know, we we spend a lot of capital every year, but we also spend a lot of lease operating expense dollars or operating dollars. And it's a big step coming from a, from a corporation to an entrepreneurial company. Some people kind of come to grips with it and realize it and really are able to step up and barely miss a beat. And then others really struggle with it. That's been kind of one of the surprises because for me, almost the fear of failure drove me to give it 110%. And I think that it just depends, you know, and, and everyone's wired differently. So it's not, it's not a fault of, of anyone. It's just really understanding, you know, what it takes to, to be successful. Well, to your point, it's hard for some executives to make the switch from a Fortune 500 company to an entrepreneurial company. And clearly you have figured that one out. What would you say to a leader who's considering switching from a Fortune 500 to an entrepreneur environment? Is it be prepared to put in lots more hours? Is it be prepared to work with less resources? Or what would you say is the big thing that might surprise them when they make the switch? Well, well, first of all, Birgit, I think that there are a lot of ways to be successful. And, you know, our way is not the only recipe to make it work. Some guys are going to come in with an incredible Rolodex and, you know, they're, they may not have all the, the technical horsepower that they need to be able to be successful, at least on paper. Yet I've seen lots of guys pull that off and, you know, still do amazingly well. I think from a little bit more of a formulaic approach, not surprising coming from an engineer, right? Hmm. But I do think that you have to be prepared for being laser focused on what it is you're looking for and building a team that is built to execute that. And as you noted, understand that you're not going to have all the resources and positions and people that you had access to in the bigger companies. So that's going to go into your hiring mix as to making sure that people can wear multiple hats, that they're comfortable wearing multiple hats, that they already have those skill sets. We are not a training ground when we get to doing what we're doing. We want people who've spent a lot of capital on other people's dollars and probably made quite a few mistakes and learned from those mistakes. Mistakes. And then the person, you know, from the more of the formulaic approach that I came from, I think there's certain disciplines and experiences that are going to give someone thinking about doing this a higher probability of success if they have a, a lot of, of well-diversified experience. For instance, if they have planning experience in their background, that's going to be very beneficial. If they have business development in their background, it's going to be very helpful, not just from a relationship standpoint, but from how assets and deals get evaluated, how the capital structure works around funding those type of opportunities, and then having the technical underpinning, not only in just reservoir or just operations, but having a solid underpinning technically of all the various disciplines that it takes to make you know one of our companies go. Those are the things that come to mind. 
Well, as we start to wrap up the show, what is the one habit that you think contributes to your great success as a leader? It's interesting. You asked that. If you asked any of the other leaders that have uh, worked with me in, in the past roles, I'm pretty sure to tell you what I'm about to say, but I stole one from, from Stephen Covey on this and it's begin with the end of mind. I think it's super important when you're starting from scratch in a commodity business, you've got to figure out where are you going to find that asset and how are you going to develop that asset and what's it going to look like at the end before you ever buy it. And mm. the way I told this to my first group of guys was this was back in 2003 and times were different. We weren't in the shell world that we're in now, but we said, you know, we need 10 million cubic feet of gas a day. We need hundred BCF reserves and we need 10,000 acres. And that's what the brochure cover is going to look like. The front of the brochure that the advisor is going to use to sell the company is going to have those attributes on the front of it with a map, you know, displaying that acreage and we We've applied that concept in everything that we bought. What does it look like before we ever buy it? Three, four, five years from now, what does it look like if we can successfully do what we think we can do to that asset to make it a profitable, successful business? And we're always in the business of creating inventory for others. If our inventory that we're going to create is not at least as good or better than inventory they have in their company, then we're not going to be a target for them. So that's really the main habit I think that I would share. I really appreciate your generosity with being on the show and being willing to continue helping others in leadership roles. And I happen to know from working with you that you're helping other leaders in the nonprofit sector as well. I guess as we wrap up, I would say others would say we're in a crisis, but I happen to know that you're doing extremely well. So congratulations to you and your team. And thank you again for being on the show. Thank you, Barrett. It's, it's always a pleasure to be with you. 